Father, we ask that you would enable us to behold wondrous things from your law. We pray that you would enable us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest your life-giving word for the glory of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. We'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. The final sermon in a series of sermons that your associate ministers have been doing on the epistle of Paul to Timothy, the second one. And uh, we've said that 2 Timothy is Paul's last will and testament to the church, a letter that's full of clarity and serenity and solemnity. As Paul awaits the gleaming steel of the executioner's blade, his mind is fixed upon eternity, reflects on the culmination of his ministry, and then he closes his letter with some final greetings. And we pick up in verse 16 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. In 1975, the uh, 12th Librarian of Congress, a man named Daniel Borston, was rummaging through his office when he discovered a vault. And he opened this vault and found an old shoebox with this label, Contents of the Pockets of Abraham Lincoln on the Night He Was Assassinated. And then in all caps, DO NOT OPEN. And naturally, he opened it immediately. He found a pair of broken eyeglasses, a couple of pen knives, and a wallet. And the wallet contained two things, a $10 bill from the Confederacy, I guess Lincoln's uh, insurance policy. Then the other item was a well-worn newspaper clipping from a speech that had been made by John Bright in the British House of Commons in which he praised Lincoln as one of the greatest men who ever lived. Now to Daniel Borston, it looked as if this newspaper clipping had been read many, many times. It was tattered and well-worn. And at the time of his death, Lincoln was considered by many to be uh, an evil tyrant, a listless buffoon. His critics were numerous. They were relentless. And today history has been kinder to Lincoln, as many, many would agree with John Bright's assessment. But the presence of this well-worn newspaper clipping in Lincoln's wallet, I think, illustrates an important lesson that leadership and loneliness often go hand in hand. That loneliness stalks where the buck stops. And you can imagine there uh, Lincoln sitting in his office, weighed down by the duties of office, alone, and having a temperament that was prone to melancholy, and then seeking solace from a scrap of newspaper that sings his praise. Uh, leaders are often misunderstood. They're forced to make decisions based on privilege information. Uh, they are accused of being short-sighted and irresponsible, or worse, you think of Moses trying to manage children of Israel for 40 years. You think of David hunted down by Saul, 
hounded by his own son Absalom. We think of Jeremiah the prophet who was maligned and unappreciated and yet remained faithful to his calling. And then we come to Paul who appeared before Caesar's tribunal and he says, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me as he was forsaken by his friends. And we tend to put the Apostle Paul on a, a pedestal because he's one of the, the great figures of church history. We ascribe to him superhuman qualities. Uh, he is one of the heroes of the faith, but yet he's flesh and blood. And you see this all through the last chapter of 2 Timothy. Uh, we see that uh, in the way that he brings these final words to the church. He desired companionship. He wanted his friend Timothy to come and visit him before winter, before all, all the travel routes shut down because of winter, so that he could have this one final visit with his friend with his son in the faith, and he missed friends and colleagues, people that he trusted and admired and abandoned him, people like Demas, people like Alexander, who attacked him. Back at verse 13, he needed warm clothes for the cold nights in the Roman dungeon. He needed books to stimulate his thinking. And that's not to say that Paul indulged a melancholy or sour spirit like maybe Lincoln did. But on the contrary, he projects this sense of unflinching joy and confidence in Christ without a hint of self-pity, without a hint of resentment, as he anticipates the completion of his race. And in these final verses, you see the emergence of key themes that have already been seen throughout the epistle. Endurance and suffering, hope in the deliverance of Christ, the nearness of God and affliction. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. What does he have to show for it? His thoughts turn heavenward as he contemplates three things. The Lord's defense, the Lord's deliverance, and the Lord's grace. Those are our three headings tonight. The Lord's defense, the Lord's deliverance, and the Lord's grace. First of all, the Lord's defense. At his trial, he stood alone, deserted, abandoned, forsaken by his friends. You see this in verse 16 where he says... At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. That first defense would have been something similar to like a, a grand jury investigation, a preliminary hearing prior to a former trial or a formal trial. And under Roman law, he would have had the, the ability to call in witnesses who would advocate for him, who would speak for him, who would, who would second what he had to say, who would support him. But he says, no one stood by me. Some could not. Because they simply could not make it. They had other tasks or obligations. And others would not because of fear. They fled. They stayed out of sight. And it's a, it's a sad picture, isn't it? That if Paul ever needed help, it was now. Uh, many years ago, I know I've, traveled, uh, I've shared with you some of my missionary travels in college. And I went to Asia to this big, uh, big city, big airport, um, to work in a, a Baptist mission hospital and... I've been told that someone would meet me at the airport. This was Dhaka International Airport in Bangladesh. And got off the plane after a long, long flight, very weary, somewhat confused about what was going on, but confident in the fact that someone would be there to pick me up at the airport. And uh, went through customs, scanned the crowds, hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people, not one familiar face, but yet confident in the knowledge that someone would be there to uh, assist me. And uh, kind of wondered. Did this queasy feeling, had I been deserted, how would I know who had been sent to get me? And then I saw it. There was a, there was a, a window pane, and behind that was a waiting room. But up against the window was a sign with my name on it in bright, colorful letters. 
the man holding the sign, I looked at him and I said, that's me, that's me. Um, and uh, he said, well, we'll come around and, and, and we'll pick you up. So I had not been forgotten. But Paul did not have this experience as he entered the courtroom to face the, the tribunal. And he looked around. No familiar faces. He looks up in the, the spectators gallery and there's nobody there that he, that he knows. There's no, no, one, uh, no cheering section there to, to spur him on. He was on his own. No one spoke on his behalf. No one advised him. No one offered any sympathy. All his friends had deserted him. Thankfully, we see Paul does not hold it against them. In fact, in verse 16, he prays for them and says, May it not be charged against them. There's no bitterness. No resentment. He doesn't ask Timothy to pass along some guilt-inducing message like, Hey, just one thing. Next time any of you brothers are appearing in court, don't do what you did to me when I appeared and conveniently failed to be there. No, be there. doesn't say anything like that. He doesn't itemize his indignities, his injustices. He deletes the record. He refuses to replay the videotape again and again in his mind. He revokes the resentment and shows mercy to his friends. And says, though they were not there, he doesn't put this desertion in the category of previous desertions, like from Demas and Alexander, who intentionally tried to do him harm. No, his friends in Rome were simply weak and scared and frightened, much like Jesus' disciples who forsook him and fled. And he compassionately writes and prays on their behalf, may it not be charged against them. Paul practices here a forgiving spirit, one that he saw himself witnessed, one that he witnessed himself from Stephen as Stephen was being stoned and put to death. You remember what he prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In fact, the very words of Christ from the cross. Father, forgive them. Paul imitating the dying prayer of Jesus. Nullifying the resentment. Nullifying the bitterness. Though they had abandoned him and left him behind. Humanly speaking, he was left alone. And when no other human rose to defend him, it was the Lord who defended him and strengthened him. So he highlights here not the faithlessness of his friends, but the faithfulness of God. That's what he says in verse 17. But the Lord... But the Lord, this symbol crash of gracious intervention that comes out in the text, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. When all others forsook me and forgot about me, the Lord will never leave or forsake us. The psalmist proclaims in Psalm 27 verse 10, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, 32, Behold, the hour is coming when you will be scattered, and you will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. You might ask, why, why if the Lord did not leave him, if the Lord promised to be with him, why did he allow Paul to rot in this Roman prison? Why did he let Paul have a comfortable, undisturbed retirement after decades of ministry and service to the Lord? Well, evidently, the Lord thought it was more important that Paul be in prison, a reality that Paul does not resist. Again, there's not a hint of self-pity here. There's not a hint of, of resentment. Instead, he seizes the opportunity to preach Christ. Uh, when Steve Jobs, uh, Apple's founder, wanted to hire an executive with Coca-Cola, Jobs discovered that he did not have the money or the funds to match this man's current salary. And so he, uh, he said, I can't give you the money, but I'll appeal to something else. 
He appealed to his future priorities. And so he asked him, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling brown sugar water, or do you want to change the world? And Paul had his priorities right. He sees this trial not as an opportunity for self-pity or woe, but as an opportunity to preach the gospel of Christ. And that's what he says in the second half of verse 17. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. You know, his trial would have been public. And many people would have come and witnessed it. And so he stands before the highest of tribunals, perhaps even before Nero himself. And he takes this opportunity to preach Christ. Christ crucified and risen and coming again. That's the Lord's defense. Secondly, now we see the Lord's deliverance. The Lord's defense, the Lord's deliverance. See, Paul is confident again, this unflinching spirit of confidence and faith that God is going to deliver him, that he will provide ultimate and complete and final salvation. You see this in verse 17 again. He says, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Uh, lots of people have asked, what is the lion's mouth referring here to? It may refer to, uh, to Satan. Satan is the roaring lion who hates the gospel and uses all kinds of cunning to obstruct it. could be an Old Testament reference here to Daniel in the lion's den being spared may refer to Nero, who was known for his cruelty, maybe even some kind of danger, even death itself. But I like what others have suggested here, that there's a parallel between what Paul says, these statements that he makes, and a psalm. Psalm 22. The very psalm that Jesus had on his mind when he was on the cross. That Paul may have been meditating on this messianic Christ exalting psalm. And maybe he's even showing us how to weave scripture into our woes and heartaches and trials. Is this Paul's Gethsemane moment? Now, of course, his agony, his sacrifice would be different from Christ. Yet like his master, he had to face this ordeal alone. As it was said of Jesus, that all forsook him and fled. But listen here to these parallels. Verse 16 of 2 Timothy 4. He says, all deserted me. No one came to stand by me. Psalm 22, 1. You know how it goes. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hear what he says in verse 17 here. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me, and I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Psalm 22, verse 21. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Psalm 22, 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. So I think when he talks about the lion's mouth, what Paul has in mind here is the very psalm that Christ had on his mind as he died for us. And I like how Paul is not, uh, there in verse 18, he's not primarily concerned about his own personal safety. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He's committing that to the Lord. The Lord will rescue me. The Lord will bring me safely into his kingdom. How different from... What our culture is obsessed with. We're obsessed with personal safety, aren't we? Safety has become the holy grail of our culture. And like the holy grail, it is something we can never quite reach. And uh, we, we, we live more safely than we ever have before. We have seatbelts and airbags in our cars. And our, our paint is lead-free. We have antibiotics to protect us from infections that in other centuries would have proved fatal. We are protected like never before, but we are also more skittish and panicky like never before. How can this be? 
Some would say it's because of our prosperity. The more prosperous you are, it encourages you to become more risk-averse, loss-averse. The more you want something, the more you fear its loss. Theologian Michael Reeves says that when your culture is hedonistic, loves pleasure, when your culture is hedonistic, when your religion is therapeutic, when your goal is a feeling of personal well-being, fear will be the ever-present headache. And so we marvel at Paul's serenity, his calm in the face of death, his composure. Uh, He knows there will be no last-minute stays of execution. So when he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, he's expressing the ultimate hope and assurance of every believer that though he may fall by the executioner's sword, God is going to bring him safely home. And Nero may dispatch him from his earthly kingdom, but God is going to save him for his heavenly kingdom. And that's why he can say to him, be the glory. For the Lord reigns forever. Every other kingdom and empire and emperor is going to be deposited on the landfill of history. Richard Wormbrand, who is the founder of the Voice of the Martyrs, he wrote the book Tortured for Christ. In the 1940s and 50s, he spent many years in prison being tortured for his faith. And he wrote about his suffering under the totalitarian regime that was there in Romania in the, in the 1940s and 50s. And there was, a, there was a high-ranking official in the Communist Party who was part of the Central Committee, a kind of shadowy, mysterious figure with seemingly limitless power, feared by everyone, Responsible for the death and imprisonment of many. His name was Vasile Lukaciu. Vasile Lukaciu. And when Wormbrand was in prison, one day there was an official who visited his cell, which was crowded with many other prisoners. And this official began to go around the room and question these prisoners as to why they were there. Why are you here? Give us the reason. And he said to the first man, Why are you here? What happened? What crime did you commit? And the first man said, I slandered Vasile Lukaciu. And then he went and asked another man, why are you here? He said, well, I supported Vasile Lukaciu. And then there was a man sort of off by himself, and he asked him, what, what brings you here to this prison cell? And the man said, I am Vasile Lukaciu. This seemingly invulnerable official had been caught in his own web of ambition and power and had been toppled, you see, because only the Lord Jesus reigns forever. To him be the glory. The Lord's defense, the Lord's deliverance. Finally, we see the Lord's grace. I love how Paul ends and begins this letter with grace. The bookends of this epistle. And he concludes with a kind of a postscript. I mean, he could have ended at verse 18. The Lord will rescue me. To him be the glory forever and ever. That's a nice stopping place. But he, he adds a few more lines, kind of a postscript here. Some of these names are familiar to us, like Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila. These were Paul, Paul's faithful co-workers and fellow tent makers. Onesiphorus, we read about him in chapter 1. Someone who visited Paul in prison and refreshed him and was unashamed of his chains. And then there are unfamiliar names, people that we simply do not know anything about, like Erastus and Trophimus, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia, mostly men, a couple of women. They are unknown to us, but they are known to God. And your service to Jesus never goes unnoticed either. 
In total, in the last chapter, I count about 15 names. Uh, those who, were, who had a positive influence on Paul's ministry. Those whom Paul commends and has nothing negative to say about. And so I think it, it points us to these realities. We learn the following lessons. You know, we read through these names. They mean nothing to us. We don't know who they are. We'll never know who they are. But what does it say about gospel ministry? Here in this little postscript, it says that the work of the gospel involves teamwork. That it's bigger than just one person. In fact, Paul mentions, I think, close to a hundred people throughout the book of Acts and throughout his epistles. Nearly a hundred names. Here he was, a pillar of the early church. Arguably the second most important figure in church history behind the Lord Jesus. And even with that kind of stature and giftedness, he could not accomplish this work alone. He had to have help. So he was eager to share the privileges of a great ministry. The work of the gospel involves teamwork. The work of the gospel involves faithfulness. Paul, every chance he he had, he showed appreciation for his co-laborers. You know, sometimes we are tempted to look at our fellow believers with suspicion. Is this someone who could threaten my position? Someone who could threaten my prestige? And yet Paul never stooped to that kind of small-mindedness, but rather gave public approval for the service and sacrifice of these individuals, prizing their loyalty and hard work. Whenever Paul found a kingdom-minded, faithful, committed co-laborer in the gospel, he valued and praised them. The work of the gospel requires teamwork. It requires Faithfulness. It requires friendship. Friendships are necessary for ministry. When Christ died for your sins, he did not nullify the fellowship of believers, but rather created it. And some of these relationships that Paul had would sputter and fade and diminish. Some of those relationships that we might have, they're strong, they're rock solid. But gospel work is relational work. And friends may abandon us, they may disappoint us. But that only points us back to Christ, who is the only flawless friend of sinners. And so we seek Christian friendships. And even if they fail, we ought not to turn from them in wholesale rejection. Or turn that into some kind of wholesale rejection of our greatest friend. The Lord Jesus, who is always there. And who will never leave us. And who will always stand by us and strengthen us. So Paul begins and ends with grace. You see this in verse 22. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. The first phrase there, the Lord be with your spirit, that's directed to Timothy. It's singular. He wants Timothy to know that the Lord will be with him in his trial, as he has been for Paul. And then the second phrase, grace be with you, that's directed towards everyone else in Ephesus. That's in the plural. It's a personal, uh, a plural pronoun. So this intensely personal letter was intended for public use. It was directed to the whole church. It's directed to us today. Grace be with you. He begins and ends with grace. The the very first verse of this epistle, he says, he speaks of the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. So his whole life and ministry grounded in the gospel, the good news that God saves dying, hostile, and helpless sinners and promises them life in Jesus Christ. The foundation of the Christian life is... Life, foundation of the Christian faith, rather, is life. So as Paul waits for death, he thinks of life. The one who has the Son has life, 1 John 5, 12. The gospel is the good news that God not only offers eternal life for those who believe in him, but he promises it. The promise of life. We could put it this way. 
Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So a war-torn, battle-hardened apostle, his whole life in ministry testifying to the gospel of grace. At the end of verse 18, he ascribes glory to God, grace and glory, encompassing his whole life and ambition. He received grace from Christ. He returned glory to Christ. So for all of us to remain steadfast, rest in the Savior's grace, remember God's faithfulness, rely on his strength to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to keep the faith, to finish well as we pray together. Father, we ask that you would grant us the grace to live for the praise of your glory, that you would free us from our love of this world, to take our hearts captive for Christ. Give us this grace that we need to live by faith, to run with endurance the race that is set before us, to come interceding on behalf of our government officials, our leaders, national, state, and local levels. We pray that they would govern with justice and equity. We pray for our missionaries around the world that you would establish the work of their hands, strengthen and sustain them for the work of your kingdom. We pray for the afflicted, that you would heal all who suffer, that you would use their afflictions for their good, that their faith, hope, and love would increase. We pray that they might endure in their affliction as they look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And would you help us to have that same outlook, to look to Christ, the pioneer, the originator of our faith, who initiates our faith and sustains our faith, and who will one day call us to himself. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We come to the Lord's table. This evening, let me remind